Where do you get your health and wellness advice? For millions of Americans, there's one source that accounts for a large part of their health information. Hi, Dr. Oz here. Welcome to my official YouTube channel. Every week, Dr. Oz's energetic and folksy approach to talking about difficult health subjects has made him a trusted and admired source for many Americans. But the Dr. Oz Show has also included questionable and misleading claims, such as the existence of miracle diet pills. During the pandemic, Dr. Oz also seemed to be giving mixed messages, promoting vaccination while also touting the benefits of a drug not proven to help in cases of COVID, hydroxychloroquine. Now the Dr. Oz show has been put on hiatus so that America's doctor can run for U.S. Senator. We look at Mehmet Oz's record for presenting accurate health and medical information, given that he's running for Congress and in that capacity could influence public health policies. This is Big Picture Science, produced at the SETI Institute, and I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley. In this episode, the results of a study that evaluated televised medical talk show recommendations, including those on The Dr. Oz Show, why Mehmet Oz testified before a Senate subcommittee on consumer protection, and the trend of spreading health misinformation under the guise of keeping an open mind. This episode in our regular look at critical thinking is Skeptic Check, Dr. Oz. Before the pandemic, there was no American physician who had a greater influence over such a large number of people, and it's no wonder. Mehmet Oz is a charismatic and talented guy. Hi, I'm Dr. Oz, and I know that losing weight is difficult. So let's go through a short, simple biology lesson and a possible solution to what may be holding you back. Now, you feel hungry because you produce a hormone called ghrelin. With degrees from both Harvard and the University of Pennsylvania, Dr. Oz has the requisite credentials of a medical expert. He was professor of surgery at Columbia University and a well-known heart surgeon. But what he doesn't have is the stodgy air that might accompany an Ivy League academic. Instead, he has a cheerful and folksy approach to talking about health and how the body functions that puts people at ease. He tackles serious issues like heart disease, but also the everyday stuff you feel shy about discussing even with your spouse. Hemorrhoids, gallstones bad breath, or what a healthy stool looks like. And he injects levity into his patter too. I mean, it's compelling television. My name is James McCormack, and uh, I'm a professor with the Faculty of Pharmaceutical Sciences at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver. These shows, they are done in a way to be entertaining because to get people to watch and listen to things, it can't be completely boring and awful. You're gonna find healthy life hacks, recipes, workouts, behind the scenes moments, collaborations with some of your favorite stars and lots more. And to be clear, just because he's entertaining doesn't mean he's not giving accurate information. I mean, some scientists do that. I've been known to do it myself, adopting a lively approach to inform people. I remember watching one of his shows where he talked about cough and cold remedies and how to treat the common cold and all that sort of stuff. And as he did it, he did it beautifully. It was evidence-based. It was rock solid. Like it was really, as I was listening to him, I was going, yeah, this is really good. Cause he's a, he's a smart guy. He knows stuff. He, he's, he knows what evidence is about. He understands how to do that. So that was an example of where he did it very, very well. 
His credentials, his candor, and his charismatic manner have earned Dr. Oz the trust of millions, and not incidentally, garnered him nine daytime Emmy Awards. But those tips about how to keep foot fungus at bay and make your spleen happy are on hiatus for now. The Dr. Oz show has been suspended while the television doctor turns politician. America's Doctor, that nickname given to him by Oprah Winfrey, who helped launch his TV career, is running for the U.S. Senate in Pennsylvania. Congressmen help shape health and medical policy. So, what do we need to know about the sort of health recommendations Mehmet Oz has made in light of his run for office? We're not interested in the political leanings of Mehmet Oz or his campaign promises. We're interested in his relationship to science. I'll be honest with you, I think most of the people who do these television medical talk shows are trying to do a good, competent job. The problem is, is many of them go down a sort of a a rabbit hole of trying to recommend things and they don't necessarily always have the time and energy or skill to look at the evidence for it. Maybe that's because, hey, look, this is television where entertainment is king. So let's clarify what the Dr. Oz show is trying to do. If it's only to provide amusement, perhaps it's not even necessary to evaluate the health claims. So is Dr. Oz a health care provider or an entertainer? You know, he's always said this is not a medical show. And I, and I saw two interviews that he made uh, on two consecutive days. And one, he said it's a medical show. And the other one, he said it wasn't a medical show. Whether or not it's a medical show is, is irrelevant. He is a person who is known to be a health care provider. And he, he is saying things under the guise of being this. He's a doctor, and he's saying doctor things. So how do we evaluate the veracity of the doctor things that Dr. Oz says on his show? Well, we can turn to a study that looked at the quality of the evidence behind them. A few years ago, prompted by the popularity of the Dr. Oz show, as well as hearing people gush about Dr. Oz while also hearing other people bemoan some of his advice, Dr. McCormick and other medical professionals decided to examine the health recommendations being made on the show. And Dr. Oz wasn't the only television show dispensing medical advice. As part of their study, they compared it with another popular medical TV show, The Doctors. Now in our 14th season, The Doctors continue to bring health and happiness into your life, giving you solid takeaway information. A group of health professionals, including doctors, nurses, and pharmacists, were assembled, and they examined 80 randomly selected claims from each program. Being able to look at clinical studies and evidence in a critical way, or at least an inquisitive way, is really a special skill. And uh, it really is something that you have to develop over, over years. And we've got a very, very good group of you know, anywhere between 10 and 20 people who do this every day, looking at information. And most importantly, how do you assess it and then make sense of it? They sorted the claims into four categories, each defined by a question. We'll hear them here and break them down again later. You know, is there any evidence to support something? Is the evidence, does it contradict what they said? Could we find any evidence? And then we sort of did a general look at it and go, is it believable evidence? Like, is it you know, as healthcare providers, would we look at this and go, yeah, we, we, we would probably recommend this. But the vagueness of some claims on the Dr. I show made them difficult to evaluate. You know, sometimes the, the recommendation was, this is good for your brain. You know, what on earth does that mean? But I tell you, just as a scientist here, 
This stuff is really worth it because studies have found that when you can use your fingers in a unique way like this, it stimulates nerve endings that go right to your brain. If I said that to you, you would go, oh, good. How do you even evaluate that comment? If it's good for your brain or your heart, what does that really mean? When the study appeared in the British Medical Journal, or BMJ, in November 2014, it was the first to examine the content of medical information given out on talk shows. Okay, Seth, are you ready to hear how these two programs, the Dr. Oz Show and the Doctors, fared in this study? Bring them on. Okay, we'll take them category by category. First, what percentage of health claims were supported by evidence? Want to guess what you think the results might be? Well, you would hope that 90% of them would, but I'm guessing that might not be true. Okay, hold on to that hope. Here's what Dr. McCormick's team found. For the Dr. Oz show, we found evidence that supported what they were saying uh, about 46% of the time. For the doctors, it was about 63% of the time. So a little bit higher in the, in the doctor's show. Well, that's a difference, but it's not really 90% in either category there. Not really 90%, no. The next category is what percentage of the recommendations were contradicted by the evidence? Contradicted evidence was about around 15% for both shows, interestingly enough. Category three, the percentage of recommendations for which there was no evidence. What percentage do you think, Seth, of the Dr. Oz show and the doctors were, there would be no evidence for the claims that they were making on those shows? Well, you know what? People often make claims for which there's little evidence. So I got to say that, you know, that was a high percentage, maybe 50%. About 40% of uh, what was on the Dr. Oz show, we couldn't actually find any evidence. And that was the, about 25% for what we saw with the doctors. Okay, so that's a little different than what I anticipated. And the last category was a subjective assessment from the healthcare providers. Was the evidence itself believable? And we boiled it down to about a third of what was in the Dr. Oz show was what we call believable evidence or somewhat believable. And for the doctors, it was about just about a half. Okay, let's find out more about the study from James McCormick, including examples from these different categories and why If you believe that the numbers look bad for both television shows, well, the conclusions we might draw from them are not as straightforward as you might think. Dr. McCormick begins with examples from the categories. Here's one. One cup of pomegranate seeds per day is good for your lungs. Now, we already talked about what does that really mean? And we we searched and searched and searched, couldn't find any evidence. So we didn't even, we tried to find any evidence that they were good for your lungs, and so we didn't find anything. So that would be no evidence found. Now, there was another recommendation, for instance, said every woman should take this supplement to reduce risk of heart disease. And that was coenzyme Q10. And so we could find evidence in other people, like in people who have heart failure and other conditions, but we literally couldn't find any evidence that women should take it. And these are both claims made on the Dr. Oz show? Yes. If I went to my doctor and 46% of what she said was supported by the evidence, but 55% was either contradicted by the evidence or there was no evidence for it, I would be concerned. I mean, that's a very, <laughs> that is not a high success rate. It really depends on, on where you draw your level of evidence. Because if the evidence was you shouldn't run out into the street without looking both ways, there are no studies of that. But it's a reasonable recommendation. There are some studies that have looked at if you go see your healthcare provider, What's the chance that what they're going to recommend it? You could base it on solid evidence. And it varies anywhere, and it depends how you look at it, but it's definitely not 100%. 
I would say it's probably for healthcare providers that there's some data that's looked at it. It's probably maybe around 75%, but you know, it doesn't, it, it really depends on the discipline that you're talking about. And, and just because something is not backed up by a lot of evidence doesn't mean it's not useful advice. So that's the, that's the nuance that is so important when we look at that. Now, when you say specifically a thing like pomegranate seeds or aspirin or a multivitamin or whatever it, it is, you can study that and evaluate whether the, if it, the evidence supports it. So as you probably know, the Dr. Oz show is big on nutrition. It's big on supplements. It's big on all those sorts of things. In fact, 40% of their recommendations were on that area, whereas the doctors weren't. And anytime you start making recommendations about nutrition, you are going down a rabbit hole of unbelievably limited evidence because it's really hard to test things to do with nutrition. In fact, interestingly, there's only ever been four large randomized controlled trials of nutrition ever done. What's an example of some of the nutrition advice that he gives on his show? So anytime you recommend that you should eat broccoli or should eat pomegranate seeds or, or any of those sorts of things, it is really tricky to find evidence to support that. It may be true, but we just don't have the evidence to support it. And, you know, for instance, like, uh, you know, if, if your healthcare provider said, you know, I, I think you should take a low, you know, a, a multivitamin, you know, you wouldn't think that was a ridiculous comment, but I can tell you right now, the evidence is quite clear, unless you have some uh, nutritional abnormality, you don't need a low dose vitamin or you don't need any vitamins. So that's the, that's the nuance. And so one of his recommendations was you should take a low dose multivitamin. And we know that there is no evidence that it, unless you have some vitamin deficiency, that that's going to help you. So there is no evidence for that. So James, if you and your team of professionals and medical experts have to spend a lot of time qualifying your statements about what Dr. Oz said, parsing his language, trying to make assumptions. How does a non-professional sort out medical information? What's true and what's not? You can't. I mean, it's, as, it's almost as simple as that. You, you literally can't. We don't think it's reasonable to expect any patient or almost any healthcare provider to actually go and look at every study around that. You need to be able to find a person who is trustworthy. You know, you're maybe your your family family doctor, or if you're getting information about uh, medications and treatment from a group that has evaluated this in detail, you have to try to find people that you can trust. Now, the problem with that is a lot of people trust Dr. Oz. A lot of people trust the people on the doctor's show. And you have to sort of go back and look at why did they do it? And, and one of the things that I've heard Dr. Oz say is, I like to give people hope. And that is very tricky because to do that, you may suspend having solid evidence to support something. Now, I, I don't think we really came up with any recommendations where you would go, boy, that is just the most harmful thing in the world and it has no benefit at all. There was nothing like that. Well, James, I wonder if you could give us um, the bottom line. What were the conclusions from your study? How did you, what was your concluding paragraph in your study? Well, what we, we literally said, and it's in, in our paper, is we said consumers should be skeptical about any recommendations provided on television medical talk shows as details are limited and only a third to one half of recommendations are based on believable or somewhat believable evidence. So what we always suggest and encourage is I don't know how you quite define skepticism, but I always define it as just wonder, are you sure that that is really 
True. And how do you solve that problem? Well, I think like anything else, you should always get a second opinion. As a patient, I think it, it does fall a little bit on your shoulders to go look for information about that and, and ask questions. We didn't come out and say, this is terrible or this is good, because that involves a judgment that I don't think is was not part of our study. So we were very, very careful to not say this proves that Dr. Oz is a charlatan or, is, or that he's a, a quack, because that is not what was studied. All we could say is, of the recommendations that they were made, we were able to find believable evidence for the percentages that we've talked about. James McCormick, thank you so much for joining us. You're more than welcome. James McCormick is a professor in the Faculty of Pharmaceutical Sciences at the University of British Columbia. So not everything in healthcare is evidence-based. I mean, that's probably not such a big surprise. Part of the reason, and I think it's very fundamental, is that biology is a very complex thing. It's not like physics, right? It can't be E equals MC cubed, right? There's a right answer and a wrong answer. But when it comes to health information, you know, there are things like nutrition that probably have very dispersed effects, and it's hard to sort out, you know, what you should be doing from what you shouldn't be doing. Well, you talked about what's not a surprise here. Uh, what was a surprise was to hear that healthcare providers are not infallible. They too fall short of the 90% evidence-based claims that we would hope that they would make. But it does sound like they're more reliable than perhaps these medical talk shows. I think one of the important points here is also the fact that your physician knows you. He has, you know, a whole history with you. He's knows, he knows the sorts of illnesses to which you are prone, that sort of thing. And that counts for a lot. It's like, I take my car, you know, to a specialist who repairs cars all day. He's seen a lot of sick cars. And as a consequence, he is a better judge of what to do than, well, certainly I would be. The year 2014 was notable for Dr. Oz. Not only did the BMJ study appear, but he also made an appearance before a Senate subcommittee investigating consumer fraud in the diet and weight loss industry. The Senate had received, through the Consumer Protection Bureau, a large volume of complaints about false advertising within the weight loss industry. Why the Senate requested Mehmet Oz to testify and what was revealed when he did. That's next. It's our regular look at critical thinking on big picture science, Skeptic Check. In this episode, the role that science plays in the advice of Dr. Oz. This episode of Skeptic Check is Dr. Oz. As Mehmet Oz makes a bid for a Senate seat in Washington, it's worth noting that he's been there before. He was called to testify before a subcommittee hearing in 2014 that was televised on C-SPAN. Next, today's Senate hearing looking at false advertising of weight loss products. Well-known cardiothoracic surgeon and television host Dr. Mehmet Oz was among the witnesses defending the language and diet products that he focuses on in his show. We've been looking at Dr. Oz's relationship to evidence-based health claims, and so far the picture's a little blurry. Yes, he provides a lot of good advice, but we also heard that the 2014 BMJ study found that fewer than half of his recommendations were supported by evidence. 
and that giving advice about nutrition is inherently fraught because the science is often unsettled. However, in 2014, when Congress convened the hearing to address deceptive advertising of weight loss products, they didn't call Dr. Oz in to give testimony because they thought some of his claims on his show were ambiguous. They thought they were outright false. This hearing will now come to order. The Senate Subcommittee on Consumer Protection was chaired by Claire McCaskill. We have all heard and seen the ads promising quick and substantial weight loss if only you take this pill. The committee subjected three supplements recommended on the Dr. Oz show to scrutiny. Those made from green coffee extract, that is, beans that are not roasted, raspberry ketones, that is, the chemicals that give raspberries their aroma, and Garcinia cambogia, a tropical fruit. Manufacturers who market supplements with these ingredients make various claims about how they help you lose weight, from increasing metabolism to suppressing appetite. Unlike drugs, though, dietary supplements do not require FDA approval. It's up to the supplement manufacturers to determine that their products are safe. As for evidence about their efficacy, well, it varies. In general, for all three of these supplements, there are no good long-term clinical trials that demonstrate that they help. Americans spend an estimated $40 billion a year on weight loss products, and every time Dr. Oz recommends one, sales spike in what's become known as the Dr. Oz effect. The Senate felt that when Dr. Oz recommended supplements like green coffee extract, it was contributing to false advertising. Reporter Ian Ward, who revisited the subcommittee hearings in a recent article for Politico magazine, said that Dr. Oz had a different interpretation. He believed that the weight loss companies and their advertisers had taken his generic endorsements of certain types of pills and used them to sell specific weight loss pills. In his mind, that was a misappropriation of his endorsement. Six other experts were called before the Senate subcommittee, but only one member of the panel had a clip of his popular television show played during the proceedings. You may think magic is make-believe, but this little bean, as scientists saying, they found a magic weight loss cure for every body type. It's green coffee beans. And when turned into a supplement, this miracle pill can burn fat fast. Aside from his celebrity status, I think the fact that he was playing the victim really motivated some of the members to go tough on him. You're very talented. You're obviously very bright. You've been trained in science-based medicine. Now, here's three statements you made on your show. You may think magic is make-believe, but this little bean has scientists saying they found the mag magic weight loss cure for every body type. It's green coffee extract. Quote, I've got the number one miracle in a bottle to burn your fat. It's raspberry ketone. Quote, Garcinia Cambogia, it may be the simple solution you've been looking for to bust your body fat for good. I don't get why you need to say this stuff because you know it's not true. And that led to an exchange about just what kind of evidence Dr. Oz had to back up his claims. Take green coffee bean extract as an example. Uh, I'm not going to argue that it would pass FDA muster if it was a pharmaceutical drug seeking approval, but... It, among the natural products that are out there, this is a product that has several clinical trials. There was one large one, a very good quality one, that was done the year that we talked about this in 2012. 
uh, is an I no, give, but what, I want to know. I want to know about that clinical trial because the only one I know was 16 people in India that was paid for by the company that was that was in fact at the point in time you initially talked about this being a miracle. The only study that was out there was the one with 16 people in India that was written up by somebody who was being paid by the company that was producing it. Well, this paper argued that there was no one paying for it, but I have the four papers, five papers actually, plus a series of basic science papers on it as well. Then, in a dramatic flourish, Senator Dean Heller asked Mehmet Oz directly what he believes is true. Do you believe that there's a miracle pill out there? There's not a pill that's going to help you long-term lose weight and live the best life without diet and exercise. Do you believe there's a magic weight loss cure out there? It, the, the word, if you're selling something because it's magical, no. If you're arguing that it's going to be like magic because if you stop eating carbohydrates, you're going to lose a lot of weight, that's a truthful statement. You may not agree with the flowery use of the word magic, but it is true that most people cutting out simple carbs will lose weight. Which perhaps is the closest answer we have to our question of what role scientific evidence plays in the health claims that Dr. Oz makes. That is, it's not needed if there's a competing idea in play. He said his role is to find ways to encourage his audience to keep going in their weight loss um, efforts, and that that is, more, in effect, more important than the scientific veracity of what he's saying. I actually do personally believe in the, in the items that I talk about in the show. I, I passionately study them. I recognize that oftentimes they don't have the scientific muster to present uh, as fact, but nevertheless, I would give my audience the advice I give my family all the time, and I've given my family these products. Now, for a conversation about what the subcommittee hearing revealed to us about Dr. Oz's relationship to science, we again turn to reporter Ian Ward. He begins with what particularly struck him about that day, besides the obvious, a celebrity TV doctor giving testimony. The bipartisan nature of the scrutiny was interesting to me. At one point, Dean Heller, a Republican uh, senator, asked him specifically tough questions as well. And in, in retrospect, it was just notable, given the, the partisan slant of the current discourse around misinformation and pseudoscience, it struck me that a Republican was, was being tough on him as well. Does Mehmet Oz have a point that his words and his claims about these supplements and diet pills have been used unfairly by companies and other, other promoters? So to what degree is he right that he has been taken advantage of? He is right to point out that he never sold a specific brand of pill through his show. And he offered a fairly passionate defense in response to a question about why doctors should not endorse specific products. Um, he said, no one would believe me if I said, oh, you have a stomach ache, take this specific medicine. It would obviously be a conflict of interest. So yes, advertisers for name brand products he endorsed had taken his words and used them to sell specific products, which is not how he had couched those to begin with. But whether he left himself open to that sort of appropriation by making generic and overly vague and non-scientific statements about pills is, is an open question. Can you give us an example of a generic endorsement and compare it with a specific endorsement that maybe the companies made about some of these diet pills? Well, many companies sell, for instance, uh, raspberry ketone. So he could say, you know, raspberry ketone melts fat. 
without saying this specific brand of raspberry ketone melts fat. And so the purveyors of specific brands could say, Dr. Oz says we melt fat, you know, um, and taking a generic statement and applying it to a specific product. And that, I mean, yeah, that, that's, that in some senses a misappropriation of his words. And should there be a regulatory mechanism to control that sort of thing? Yeah, certainly. I mean, from a, a strictly legal point of view, there should be accountability for those advertisers. But in a broader sense, does he bear a sort of ethical responsibility for making sure that his statements aren't are narrow enough that they can't be misappropriated? Perhaps. I mean, that's up for consumers to decide and lawmakers to decide. What is your understanding about what was revealed about Mehmet Oz during the Senate subcommittee hearing? And was something new revealed? Maybe not to the public because not not many people watch these Senate hearings, but was there something revealed to us about him over the course of this testimony in this hearing? What struck me was that he had a very acute understanding of why people were watching him and why they were buying his products. And it was not because they believed in the scientific veracity of his products. They didn't want scientific truth. They wanted a different type of truth, um, an extra scientific truth. And he offered that to them. And I think what I took away from the hearing is that he understood that intimately, that people weren't yearning after scientific truth. So he's really, maybe he's not specifically selling weight loss pills, but he's selling an idea. He's selling comfort, perhaps. Yeah. I don't think anyone reaches for a magic weight loss pill as their first line of defense, as their first attempt to lose weight in general. They reach for those products when they've tried conventional means of weight loss and they haven't worked. And and, and I think to face the reality that uh, weight loss is difficult, that's a tough reality to face. And, and the belief that there's a magic solution out there is comforting. People want to believe that something extra scientific will solve a problem that, you know, that's otherwise difficult to solve. In 2018, uh, Memonaz actually ended up paying a settlement related to his weight loss claims. Do you think that that class action lawsuit came about or were triggered by the Senate subcommittee hearing? I think they all, the hearing and the lawsuit grew out of the same sense that he was, you know, participating in false advertising. I, I, could, I, I couldn't find a direct causal connection between the hearing and the uh, class action lawsuit, which I believe unfolded over the course of many, many years, as class action lawsuits tend to do. But, you know, I mean, there are two manifestations of the, the same phenomenon, which is people growing disillusioned with his claims um, and increasingly coming to see that they were false and misleading. Well, Ian, how did the hearings conclude? And after the committee had identified particular claims that he had made and showed that they were misleading, was he reprimanded? No, some of the members were, were fairly harsh on him. Claire McCaskill in particular gave him sort of a tongue lashing. But no, he didn't. He didn't. There were no material consequences. The questions moved on to the other experts and began to focus more on building a regulatory mechanism um, to address false advertising. And he sort of fell to the background of the hearing a bit. But it was sort of a joke at the time. I think people thought it was and, and some of the press coverage at the time was, oh, look how funny and sort of bizarre of a spectacle this is. And some of the darker resonances of it, you know, um, the resonances that we're more attentive to now that we've lived through 
a crisis of information and of medical science. Those were neglected in the press coverage right after it. So in revisiting it, I sort of wanted to draw out some of those darker resonances. Mm-hmm. It was a sort of fracturing of the epistemic foundation, right? You see he's he's dealing with two definitions of truth and he's moving back and forth very fluidly between those two definitions and he's conversant in, in the language of those two notions of truth, right? But those two notions of truth hadn't been politicized in the way that they are now. So you see this crack starting to emerge in the in those hearings, which then got totally blown open by the, the COVID pandemic and the political response to the pandemic. That's very interesting. And so one notion of truth would be that which is backed up by scientific evidence, and the other would be that which feels right, which feels good. Yeah, it, it's truth, um, the type of truth that gets people out of bed in the morning and, and gets them to you know keep going, which may or may not align with scientific truth, but is certainly a definition of truth that many people in this country are operating on. Ian Ward, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, guys. Ian Ward is a contributing editor for Politico magazine. Here's what makes it hard to sort out good health information from the bad. We're finding that you don't necessarily have the quack advice in one box and the science-based advice in another. Dr. Oz gives both solid science and pseudoscience recommendations. One thing that's worth noting, a few months after the Senate hearing, researchers retracted their paper about the green coffee bean study conducted in India that Dr. Oz cited, saying they could not guarantee the validity of the data. We reached out to Mehmet Oz repeatedly to comment for this episode. His representatives responded, but would not commit to an interview. Next, what happens when misinformation is defended with a plea for open-minded thinking? He sort of invites his audience to lower their standard for critical thinking. And I think that that really does hurt not just individual patients, but I think it hurts society. It's our regular look at critical thinking on Big Picture Science, Skeptic Check. In this episode, the role that science plays in the advice of Dr. Oz. Emmett Oz's appearance before the Senate subcommittee was eight years ago. Let's bring things up to date. In general, the spread of health misinformation has only gotten worse since 2014, and Dr. Oz's health advice has drawn renewed attention, this time in connection with the pandemic. Dr. Oz has long supported the importance of routine vaccinations, but during the pandemic, he gave mixed messages, for example, promoting COVID-19 vaccines while also touting the unproven COVID-19 treatment hydroxychloroquine. When Mehmet Oz announced his run for a Pennsylvania U.S. Senate seat at the end of 2021, the Dr. Oz show went on break and he retired from his clinical and teaching practice at Columbia University. Now, to shed light on whether Dr. Oz has had a role in shaping our current misinformation landscape and whether there are consequences of a doctor recommending unproven treatments under the guise of open-minded thinking is professor of law at the University of Alberta, Timothy Caulfield. His team studies the spread of health misinformation 
Timothy, what we've learned about Dr. Oz helps us understand why health misinformation is hard to fight. He's not a straight-up charlatan. He mixes good health advice with bad. The good includes getting vaxxed, eating your veggies, exercising, and an example of the bad is try this miracle diet pill. I think you're right, and he's a classic example of that. In fact, a lot of his defenders will will point that out. They'll say, look, he tells people to exercise, he tells people to get a, a good night's sleep and to eat in a healthy manner. But even when he does that, there is often this veneer of pseudoscience. You know, so even when he is promoting the, these basic, well-known, evidence-based lifestyle strategies, there's also often, often an injection of evidence-free bunk. So, so it's a really kind of a strange beast. I mean, after all, he is a talented surgeon, right? By all accounts, he's intelligent. He's credentialed. He went to Harvard in addition to being telegenic, which probably doesn't hurt either. I mean, you know, it's hard to fault him on the, if you will, the, the label of ingredients there. It is a fascinating story, isn't it? I, I, I think that he somehow got pulled into the vortex of celebrity. And, and I'm speculating here. I can't read his mind. I don't know what's going on. But it's difficult to explain his fall away from rationality and evidence-based approaches to healthcare. It really is difficult to explain it because it's been quite the fall. <laughs> you know, we're not talking about sort of uh, just things that are on the margin. He really has embraced things that are complete pseudoscience. Uh, and he's done it with that MD behind his name. He's done it with that Columbia University credential, you know, looming behind him. He's likable. He, he kind of feels like he has the same values as me. And he's an MD, right? So you bring all those things together and you get a very influential voice. Yeah, it's like talking to some guy at a party who's, you know, I mean, he's, he's very personable and you hit it off right away. And then you find out that, I don't know, he's a physician and you begin to talk about your back or whatever. I mean, you know, you, you trust him immediately with medical advice because you found him an appealing character. It's so true, isn't it? You know, I, I've... I've watched a lot of Dr. Oz for research purposes, and he, he has this really folksy approach. Hey, are, are you trying to lose weight? It's, it's sure tough, isn't it, to lose weight? But listen, I've heard about this fantastic new herb that can really you know, jumpstart your metabolism. Let's hear about it. I mean, it's a really enticing approach. And, and the other thing that people like Dr. Oz do, and this is something we've actually studied at our institute, is they use anecdotes very, very in a very powerful manner. We know that a narrative, an anecdote, a story can make something seem very persuasive. In fact, there's studies that have shown that you know anecdotes can kind of turn off our ability to think scientifically, right? And a powerful anecdote, especially if it's scary or maybe it's coming out of the mouth of a celebrity, can be very persuasive. It can outweigh you know hundreds of millions of data points, right? The other thing that he does very effectively is he sprinkles in sciencey language. I call it science exploitation, right? He'll he'll talk about stem cells, he'll talk about the microbiome, or maybe he'll throw in the word genomics, right? Using that sciencey language does give it credibility. Why, Timothy, does his medical outreach trouble you so? I mean, I mean, lots of people believe that astrology might work, a lot of them, and I could spend all my time lecturing them on why it doesn't work and couldn't work. But they continue to believe. But with medicine, the, the situation is different. 
pseudoscience matters in medicine. It doesn't matter in a lot of fields. Is that why you're troubled? I mean, is that the root of your angst here? Yeah, and you know what? I'm going to go even broader. You know, I, I think that one of my my biggest concerns is is that he really does push this embrace of magical thinking. He sort of invites his audience to lower their standard for critical thinking, lower their standard for the application of evidence, and to um, sort of embrace pseudoscience. And, and I think that that really does hurt not just individual patients, but I think it hurts society because we've seen what the spread of misinformation can do. We've seen the, the harm that it can do. And, and I think Dr. Oz is also another very good example of a trend that is happening right now with the spread of misinformation that is going to make it more difficult. And that is, it's becoming so much more about ideology, right? It's not about the science so much more. It's increasingly about ideology. So if you're part of this ideological community, believing these bits of, of pseudoscience, it's part of the ideological signaling that you need. It's in-group signaling. So Dr. Oz goes in front of the Congress in 2014. Uh, was that some sort of watershed moment? I mean, could that have been more successful, at least for people who want to foster you know, some sort of literacy in medicine? It was a fascinating moment, wasn't it? And and I, I think leading up to that, his appearance in the Senate, you started to see, you know, more critique of him in, in pop culture. You started to see more individuals in the academic community, but all, I, I think also journalists really critiquing the nonsense that he was pushing on the American public. So I, when I heard about this, I was incredibly hopeful, right? I thought, okay, he's going to be called out. This is going to make a real difference in and, and how people view Dr. Oz, and it didn't really happen. One of the things that Ian Ward said is that he sees that Senate hearing as a moment when a crack appeared, if you will, between two realities, the evidence-based reality and the let's make people feel good and give them hope reality. Has the problem grown since then, and has Dr. Oz played a role in that? Yeah, I, I think it has grown. And again, this is another question I get often, right? You know, people say, oh, look, quack therapies have been around for centuries. And that's true. Right? <laughs> I think there's absolutely no doubt about that. They, they always have been around. And there are a lot of physicians that push unproven therapies in the context of conventional medicine. That's another critique you hear all the time, right? Look, you know, conventional medicine doesn't work too. You know? But the problem is that that's not a justification for importing more things that we know don't work, that we know don't have a solid evidence base behind them. And celebrity wellness gurus like Dr. Oz have grown in influence. And, and I also think there has been, there was this embrace, almost a postmodern embrace of alternative medicine where we kind of gave it a free pass. And in that tolerance of pseudoscience, I think also uh, allowed it to grow. And, and now we're seeing what happens, right? We've seen it with, you know, the embrace of unproven therapies in the context of COVID. We've seen it with uh, vaccination hesitancy. And now we're getting this strange merger between conspiracy theories, alt-right, and the wellness industry that has made this problem even harder, even more difficult to address. So yeah, there, I don't think there's any doubt that this problem has grown and people like Dr. Oz, they've made it worse. But Timothy, I mean, you hear this in many contexts where somebody is saying something either controversial or what you think is wrong, but they'll throw up their hands and they say, look, I'm just trying to present 
the other side. I'm just trying to present various viewpoints, and I leave it to the listener, viewer, whatever, to decide. It's it's not a credible response, and I, and I actually find it an infuriating response. And we are hearing it again and again and again. And in fact, it's becoming a very powerful um, strategy to inject misinformation. It's becoming a misinformation uh, machine. Um, it's called just asking questions. And the reason I think it's so effective as a strategy to push misinformation is it, it seems right. <laughs> it seems noble. It seems like this is exactly what we should be doing. Marketplace of ideas. Uh, but the problem is that it's disingenuous. They're not just asking questions. They're platforming nonsense in an uncritical manner. They're doing what's often called false balancing, right? They're, they're presenting a fringe idea as if it's legitimate, uh, they're presenting a fringe idea as if it's science-based when it's not. Maybe you could elaborate on what happened when Dr. Oz promoted hydroxychloroquine as a COVID treatment. That's a really good example of how a voice like Oz can do real harm, right? At the beginning of the pandemic, he endorsed hydroxychloroquine. Uh, and that endorsement, we know those kinds of endorsements had an impact on public perceptions. You know, there've been a lot of really interesting studies that have done things like mapped, you know, people searching for hydroxychloroquine after statements by individuals like Dr. Oz, like Trump, you know, um, Elon Musk. It has an impact. And we know it also increases uptake and, and it increases prescriptions, right? So that's doctors responding to request from patients. Fast forward to more recently, and we're seeing, you know, he's kind of doubt mongering about things like masks and the utility of mandates. Uh, and of course, what he's doing now is he's playing to what he thinks is his audience in the context of an election. But we know that kind of doubt, doubt mongering also can have a real impact. And there have been a lot of interesting studies that demonstrate exactly that. But on the other hand, I, I, I thought that we had learned pretty well that railing against pseudoscience, I mean, you know, be it astrology, homeopathy, that vaccines are dangerous and give you autism, all that sort of thing, that usually doesn't produce any salubrious results. Well, I think that debunking, let's call it that, right, it does work. You know, I think that there is this belief in the, what's called the backfire effect. And Seth, I think that's what you've touched on here. And, it, and it's, it's a pretty deep-rooted belief. It's the idea that if you, you know, you counter this information, you try to explain that it doesn't work, that you're not going to make a difference, right? And now we have a really robust body of evidence that says that, number one, uh, debunking does work, you know, using good science, shareable content, uh, that is relevant to the audience you're speaking to can make a difference. So that's number one. Number two, and I think more importantly, there's also good evidence that the backfire effect, this idea that there's no point in doing it and you're just going to amplify the misinformation and you're just going to cause them to become more entrenched in their position, that's largely not true. Most of the evidence that we have looked at tells us that the backfire effect, it's not completely irrelevant, but it's often overstated and it shouldn't scare us away from from debunking. But, but Seth, the reality is that this kind of problem, the spread of misinformation, the spread of pseudoscience is incredibly, it's a complex social phenomenon. We're not going to solve it with one tool. We need regulatory tools, FDA, FTC. We need the, the licensing boards <laughs> to deal with their members, their MD members. We need to teach critical thinking skills. And there's good evidence that tells us that, that can make a real a real difference. We need the social media platforms to do more. And yes, we need to get out there and counter misinformation, the misinformation that's coming from people like Dr. Oz.
Timothy Caulfield, thanks so very much for speaking with us. My pleasure, and thanks for tackling this topic. Timothy Caulfield is a Canada Research Chair in Health, Law, and Policy at the University of Alberta. Well, Seth, that brings us to the big picture at our look at the relationship Dr. Oz has with science and with evidence. What's your takeaway? Well, you know, as usual, it's, it's kind of a mixed thing. Because on the one hand, you can say it's a good thing that medicine has people like Dr. Oz. He's charismatic. He appeals to the public. And consequently, he has, you know, a large megaphone to talk about, well, what you ought to do about your health. Now, the problem here is that he's, he's, he's doing it the way he wants to do it, and that might include telling you things that actually aren't backed by evidence. So there's the danger. And he is giving advice as a medical professional, and this is a tricky subject because we're not just trying to figure out what's true about what he said, but we're also raising the question of whether it's okay for people to say things that aren't true. And certainly people say things that aren't true all the time. But in this case, he's doing it as a doctor. This is not the Mehmet Oz show, but it's the Dr. Oz show. And you can't just say anything when you're a doctor. The thing is that there are indeed pitfalls here, that if he's giving incorrect or scientifically unsupported advice, then there may be some public harm. And so uh, you just have to make sure that people get that information. It's like saying anybody can get up and say that this uh, brand of cigarette is better for you, but, you know, there's a public harm in that. Well, many thanks to senior producer Gary Niederhoff and assistant producers Brian Edwards and Shannon Rose Geary, who helped make Big Picture Science possible. I am executive producer of the show, Molly Bentley. Thanks also to financial support from Rena Shulsky David and Sammy David, to NASA, and to the William K. Bose Jr. Foundation. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit education and research organization that, amongst other endeavors, promotes critical thinking. I'm the Institute's senior astronomer, Seth Shostak. Also, a big thanks to our listeners and our Patreon supporters. Original music in the show by Dewey DeLay and June Miyaki. This Skeptic Check episode of Big Picture Science that looked at the role that science plays in the advice given by Dr. Oz is called Skeptic Check, Dr. Oz. Skeptic Check is brought to you thanks to a generous grant from the Trimberger Family Foundation. At the Trimberger Family Foundation, we hold that skepticism is a lamp that lights the way to truth. Trimberger.org.